Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have leadership consultant Greg Thomas back on our podcast. Greg is a business consultant, author, keynote speaker, and a personal life coach that I have known for many, many years. We have completed our discussions on personal leadership, and today we will begin a series of podcasts on servant leadership. As a reminder, you can learn more about Greg's training skills on his YouTube site. Simply type in Leadership Excellence on the YouTube homepage search bar, and you will find him. Greg, welcome back to The Cubic Report. Well, thank you, Vic. It's great to be here, and servant leadership is a very important topic. It has begun to revolutionize American business beginning in the 1960s. It still has a long way to go to change our organizations and change our culture, but I'm delighted to be able to talk to you about it today. Well, I'm happy to start with this new subject in a series, hopefully, that we will have on this subject. So, Greg, in the previous podcasts, we covered the importance of personal leadership and the principles of personal leadership outlined in your book, which is Making Life's Puzzle Pieces Fit. If anyone in our listening audience missed these valuable discussions, I encourage you strongly to go back and listen to the previous five podcasts that we had with Greg. But now I wanted to have a discussion of leadership and bringing it to another level and begin to discuss the topic of servant leadership. So Greg, what is servant leadership and how does it differ from the traditional type of leadership that we see in society? All right. Well, thank you, Vic. That's an excellent question. So we started out with personal leadership and that's internal. That is how we learn to lead ourselves. So now we're growing to the point to talk about servant leadership. Servant leadership is the way that we influence others, either in our family or in our organizations or in our culture. So servant leadership is a value system. It comes directly from the heart and from the mind. And it's an attitude. And for most of us, it is contrary to human nature. It's contrary to the way that we are naturally because we know that leaders often are, and they can be very powerful. They can have uh, a lot of wonderful qualities, but leadership can also be very destructive and harmful. Mm -hmm. And traditionally leaders are very harmful and destructive. They abuse their influence. They abuse their power to dominate and control others. And all you have to do is spend a little bit of time in human history, seeing how virtually Anytime a group of people got together, ultimately there was an autocratic leader who became powerful, who dominated other human beings, and then wanted to dominate nations and cultures and peoples around them and protected their power by appointing an elite to support them. And that is the history of humanity. Autocratic leaders do this all the time. Of course, the word autocratic means ruling by oneself, making all of my own decisions and being a ruler totally and completely by myself. Mm -hmm. So that is traditional leadership. And continuing with traditional leadership, uh, the traits that you'll find in Eastern, in the Eastern world, the Western world, have always focused on the accumulation and exercise of power by an individual. And they create this pyramidal form of organizational government, and it still exists today. Frankly, if you look at Vladimir Putin, uh, he's an autocratic leader. Mm -hmm. And we can see the destruction that he has caused not only 
within his own nation, but in Central Europe. So a servant leader is someone who's totally opposed to gaining power for power's sake, who is totally opposed to trying to control others through a command and control mindset. A servant leader shares power with other people and they put the needs of other people first. This helps them to develop, that's the other people, those are working with you, it helps them to develop as individuals, allows them to perform as highly as possible. So a servant leader is leading from the heart and rather than having a motive that I want to be a leader to tell everybody what to do, to command and control, to boss everyone around and to manipulate other people so that I get to feel important. In contrast to all that, a servant leader is about growing and developing people. And a servant leader believes that if they grow and develop the people, then the people will grow and develop the organization. And in the process, you'll have a happy group of people. You'll have a good, healthy culture and that you'll have had the right kind of leadership that can last for generations. Abraham Lincoln once said, if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And sure enough, if you give someone a little bit of power very quickly, you'll find out whether they're going to be narcissistic, bossy, whether they're going to push people around or whether if you give them power, they're going to use it in a responsible way to help others grow and become more than they are. So the servant leader is a servant first, and that's why the word leadership has the word servant in front of it. You make a conscious choice to lead others in order to develop the potential of other people. And you do this through, first of all, your positive personal example. And you're doing this not to increase your own authority. Again, not because you're narcissistic, not because you want to draw attention to yourself, but you're doing this because you want other people, those followers, those who are working with you to be able to grow to their greatest potential. The objective you have as a servant leader is to enhance the well-being of other individuals in the organization. And when you increase their development and training and you develop a greater sense of teamwork and personal involvement by everyone, you will have an outstanding organization in contrast to one that is political, stagnant, in which people hate being in that environment, which you typically find in autocratic organizations. So in a nutshell, that's it. We, we have mm -hmm. been part of organizations, you know, we have worked in leadership positions and we have seen various people, you know, come and go. And the type of person that you describe here as a servant leader is certainly commendable. The kind of person that you want to work with, the kind of person that you want to be yourself, mm -hmm. but oftentimes an environment does not either allow for it or is negligent and allows someone to have the negative the, the poor qualities that you mentioned rise. And like you were mentioning about Putin, I, I don't think it started out that way. It didn't start out that way after the Soviet government collapsed. It truly tried to be a democracy, of, but then cultural and neglect led to a person wanting to seek that power. But we're talking about leadership at various levels. We're not talking about world leaders. We're talking about servant leadership. Aren't we about just what you might do yourself with your company and maybe even your family, right? 
Oh, you're absolutely right. But you know, you bring out a good point there, Vic, and that is cultures are very powerful. It's no surprise that the same culture that brought us Ivan the Terrible and Joseph Stalin also is the same culture that brought us uh, Vladimir Putin. So you do have to change the culture. I mean, nations are cultures too, just like uh, any company is a culture. And if that culture gets out of whack, if that culture becomes toxic, then all it does is it produces the same results over and over again, whether it's a nation or whether it's a company or frankly, whether it's a family, a human family. So servant leadership is not a fad, it's not a theory, it's not just something that was invented in the 1960s by a man named Robert Greenleaf. It's an embedded value system that is very ancient. Uh, it can move an organization from being mediocre to being a great organization, and that's been documented over and over again by a number of fine organizations, and maybe in a future podcast we can mention a few of them by name, mm -hmm. but it literally has transformed a number of organizations, and um, it'll do nothing less. If you embrace servant leadership, it will do nothing less than improve your family. If you are a servant leader within your own family environment and the way that you treat your spouse and your children and your family members, it'll do nothing less than change your family for the positive. It will change your life. And it most certainly, if you have influence in a business environment, it will change your workplace. So you may work in a team or an environment where maybe the owner of the company isn't a servant leader, but you can begin to develop servant leadership in your own world, in the department that you manage mm -hmm. or the team that you work with. So you can begin to make some dramatic positive changes uh, anywhere in the workplace where you have influence where you're there to uh, participate and serve. So in a nutshell, with servant leadership, instead of people working to serve the leader, that's reversed. The leader exists to serve the people. And when one has the heart of a servant leader, it sparks the capabilities and the potential and the ingenuity of everyone around them. And the end result are people working with you who are more engaged, who feel more valued, they're, they end up being more productive, and they're more fulfilled. Uh, so the major purpose of servant leadership is to coach and inspire and to grow the people around you, to influence them in a positive way, rather than trying to get them to perform by dominating them or barking out a bunch of orders or commands or policies or procedures in order to control everything that they do. Well, that's one. That's a very good point, uh, Greg. Here, because w I have worked for bosses that have been servant mm -hmm. leaders. I have worked with fantastic people who had very, very strong personal values, a humility mm -hmm. and a meekness in how they worked with people and how they also looked to the mission of the company or the church. But then also, mm -hmm. I worked with people on the opposite who have been narcissistic. I have worked with people who have been uh, domineering, people who were very, very proud, and that made it very difficult. But you still have to work in that sure. environment. As you said, you have to work with your team, with your with, with, with your cohorts, with, with your friends, with your fellow employees to develop that culture. And that's why I feel like this podcast and this discussion is so important because your environment may not be perfect, but you can 
have an environment within the influence area you have to continue doing what, what you're doing. So did our previous discussions on personal leadership have anything to do with personal leadership? Because I really feel like the 12 points that we brought out there were a strong foundation. Would you agree? Yeah, you just hit the nail right on the head. The qualities that we discussed in personal leadership, and that's why it's the first step, are actually the very foundation of becoming a servant leader. Because servant leadership, you have to develop your own life first before you can lead by example. Mm -hmm. It has to be part of you. It has to be your core values, those principles that we discussed. Gandhi said you have to be the change that you wish to see in the world. Right. Um, something else that comes to mind is the late uh, Dr. Stephen Covey. He talked about leadership being the inside-out leadership approach. Well, the inside is personal leadership. And then the outside, once that has been developed, is our ability to have a positive influence on others because we got the inside straightened out first. He said private victories precede public victories, and you can't invert that process any more than you can harvest a crop before you plant it. It's inside out. So what Covey meant when he said that was that an inside out approach begins with personal accountability. That's personal leadership. Self-mastery, that's personal leadership. Emotional intelligence, that's personal leadership. So that's the inside out approach. Personal leadership is the inside and then servant leadership is the outside approach in which you use the disciplines and the skills that you've learned yourself and you're able to use those same qualities to have a positive influence on others. How did the word servant get in there? The word servant oftentimes is a word used not in business as, as so much yeah, as it's yeah, used, that's for sure. as it's used in uh, uh, even faith and religion and you know where to be servant. Uh, how did the word servant get into servant leadership? I know that uh, the subject of servant leadership is taught at various levels in, in mm -hmm. many, many secular levels. In fact, when I used to discuss this uh, in, in my church, I would talk about servant leadership, and some of the college students came up to me and said, oh, we're taking a course in servant leadership. leadership. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. really? At, at the university? It was a very secular course, but it was discussing a, a style of management, of leadership that was servant-oriented. Yeah, absolutely. I, I first learned of the concept of uh, servant leadership in my 40s. I had a midlife crisis and uh, I was happily married, couldn't afford a sports car, so I had to do something else crazy. So I went back to college to get a master's degree in leadership after having been out of college for 20 years, I might add. And it was in one of those classes at Bellevue University where I have my master's degree and taught for a few years afterward, that I was introduced to the idea of servant leadership. And it was actually coined by a consultant. It was coined by a man named Robert Greenleaf mm -hmm. in an essay that he wrote called The Servant Leader. And that was first published in 1970. But servantly, the idea, even though it's not called servant leadership, the idea, as far as we can understand it, goes all the way back to about 500 BCE. There were individuals like Lao Tzu, a Chinese Taoist philosopher, and in his writings, he talks about how leaders should be 
humble. He says uh, self-effacing. They should say very few words. He said you should lead so that when things are accomplished, people say we have achieved it ourselves rather than giving credit to the leader Mm -hmm. or the leader um, trying to draw attention to himself that the followers would say we did this ourselves. And he said that is quality leadership. And there are a lot of uh, religious underpinnings of what became known as servant leadership. Buddhism was founded on the values of virtues, which align very tightly with those of servant leadership. Uh, Jesus Christ taught his disciples to be servants first. He called our traditional autocratic leadership, he, he called it Gentile, something he rejected. Mm-hmm. And he said all they want to do all the time is just lord it over people. They're into their authority. But the modern phrase of servant leadership, again, came from Robert Greenleaf. He worked at AT&T for a while, and then he retired very early, and he began to become a consultant. And he consulted for a number of really fine companies, MIT, the Lilly Endowment. But there was something eating at him. He knew that the American workplace, uh, his term was that the country was in a leadership crisis. And that gnawed at him. So he retired early. He became a consultant and he was a religious individual and he was a Protestant, a religious individual. And he understood the concept of what Jesus Christ was was teaching himself. And so as a consultant, he said he stood for about 11 years trying to figure out the connection between being a servant and how that could influence the workplace, how it could influence organizations. So he began writing, being a consultant. That was a natural gift that he had. And again, he coined the phrase servant leadership, and he continued writing and fine-tuning his ideas and focusing on them in a vast number of areas and had a major influence. He also founded a foundation named after him, the Greenleaf uh, Foundation. And um he was the one who literally coined that phrase, Vic. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that that phrase really had resonated with us because, you know, being in the, as a minister and in, in, in that world, that equates to a whole way of thought in, in, in conduct and behavior. So uh, that I found to be very interesting and really attracted me to study the subject. Mm-hmm. But I'm amazed as to, to how many people in the secular world are finding benefit even monetary benefit to have oh, an, sure. to have an environment where people treat each other in this manner for greater production for for greater success in their corporations outcomes yeah well it simply works whether you're a servant leader in your family you'll have a healthier and better relationship with your other family members if you're a business owner you're going to end up with people who are more highly motivated because they feel valued you listen to them Uh, Rather than trying to control all information, you share things with them, you share decision-making with them, you get their input before you make a final decision, you run things by individuals, and you have a greater sense of buy-in. And people who have a great sense of buy-in to their company or organization are going to be more productive, you're going to have less turnover, you're going to have a healthier culture. Uh, those instances when conflicts do arise, and they will because we're all human, you'll be able to deal with conflicts in a far more mature way to resolve them. And the bottom line is it works. And that's why people, whether they're religious or not religious, 
are uh, being attracted to the concept of servant leadership. If you don't mind, I'd like to take a few more minutes just to give you a history of where we got in the world today with uh, the autocratic mindset and autocratic leadership, because we still see it. I mean, we've had some recent presidents who were very uh, narcissistic, who do everything they can to draw attention to themselves. It's all about them. So th this is not something that's going away. <laughs> autocratic <laughs> leadership and the toxic <laughs> environment created by to uh, autocratic leadership has been around for thousands of years. And it's going to be around a long, long time until uh, literally we change human culture. So let's go back, say, about 5,000 years, maybe a little more than 5,000 years. You get people who begin to gather together in groups instead of just roaming out there alone. And, and they're creating their own groups for protection and its survival, and it's easier to hunt. And so they naturally begin to seek leadership. And usually it's someone who's maybe physically larger than everyone else. They kind of assume a leadership position. And if they're competent, then other people are willing to follow. And as time went on, then you had city-states. And they formed strong rulers who emerged from city-states. And again, if you read about ancient history in the Middle East and Egypt, uh, they're all developed every one of them with a command and control structure. There's a yearly cycle of pillaging and raiding everyone next to them. That's a sad commentary on the history of ancient peoples in mankind. And people are manipulated, they're controlled, most people are considered disposable. Then in time, you get the Greek city-states and they form the concept that we live under today called democracy. And I kind of agree with um, Winston Churchill, who said democracy is the worst form of government ever created unless you compare it to everything else. So it certainly has its problems, but compared to the other forms of government man has created for himself, uh, democracy at least gives people a voice. It gives them a change, uh, an opportunity to create change. Um, so the Greek city-states formed democracies, but in time they failed and authoritarian power tyrants rose. And the same thing happens in Rome. It had a democracy for a while. It was a republic, but it degenerated into autocratic emperorship. And then Europe entered the Dark Age. And what do you see when you look at all the nations of Europe? Every one of them have kings, hierarchical uh, people, the elite to protect the king and to maintain his office and his family and power. And Europe, again, is in the Dark Ages. You see authoritarian rulers. Modern nations begin to form about 1500 A.D., and then a little closer to where we are today, you have the Industrial Revolution. And that's truth. The reason it's called a revolution is because it, it absolutely was. It brought unskilled and uneducated rural workers into the cities by the masses. So, Vic, I want you to imagine this. It's about the year 1750. You're an entrepreneur. 
you are going to create your own business. Maybe you're going to make cloth or you're going to do something with some of the innovations provided by the industrial revolution, steam power or something to make things faster. So what models of management do you have to look at in England in 1750? What models of leadership exist for you in your culture? Can you think of anything? Uh, unfortunately, you don't have very good choices. Mm -hmm. So the models available are a hierarchical national government. You've got the king, lords, dukes, right? The wealthy elite, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, and they control society. And it's hierarchical, it's command and control. Another option is you might look through the military. What are you going to find? Well, you're going to find generals and lieutenants, majors and colonels and captains. And you're going to, again, find a command and control hierarchical structure. All right. I was going to say, too, that I'd like to just back up a little bit to the, mm -hmm. you're talking about how uh, different people wanted to govern themselves. And so they would choose a certain either bigger person mm -hmm. or more forceful person. And that kind of right. ties into the models that we have here. Uh, one of the finest books I've ever read is called Peter the Great by Robert Massey. And he, ah. he, he talks about the whole Russian mindset of czars. It starts with uh, really the, the northern uh, kingdoms you know, of Sweden mm -hmm. and, and Russia, and talks about the Russian czars, and talks about the Russian Orthodox Church as well, and the leadership that was in those areas. And the big question was, how in the world could they take on or accept someone basically telling them what to do and have total control over their lives. The national temperament of the Russian people, who are very mm -hmm. docile, they want to please. They want to please their leader. They look upon their leader mm -hmm. as someone who is a Romans 13, has come directly from God. And some of those passages were greatly used by the czars. I have come from God. And so people look to them and to the head of the church. But what happened is that these people who were very mild-mannered were not people who defended any lasting rights that they had. They basically mm -hmm. gave themselves over to someone who filled that void of any type of balance or any type of checks and balances and gave themselves over. The same thing happened under the communist rule, which was supposed, which was supposed to be democratic, but it quickly became extremely autocratic, reaching its zenith with Stalin, and for that matter, the other rulers afterwards. Then finally, democracy came for a short time, and people were very, very happy that now they can be like some of the countries in the West. But then that didn't last very long. Look what's happened with Putin. He basically has filled mm -hmm. power void that has been filled in before. Mm -hmm. So for servant leaders to function, they have to have an environment to be able to function in. Yeah, and that gets back to the culture mm -hmm. that we were talking about. Exactly gets back to the culture that we were talking about. And any business owner knows that uh, your culture, if you don't change your culture, you can have the greatest strategy and new ideas and new programs in the world, and they're all going to fail. Mm -hmm. Every one of them are going to die in the vine if you haven't corrected the culture first. That's going to decide how successful you are as, as a business owner. And even, you know, Churchill, as much as he, he was so correct about democracy, you know, it's a fine system, but it really has to have more than just proclaiming itself as the governing system in order to function. Mm -hmm. For sure. Absolutely. As we were talking, Vic Kubik has his own business. It's 1750. 
you are an entrepreneur, you want to create cloth very quickly from some new machinery you've got that's operated by steam, and you're looking for a leadership model for you to use in your brand new revolutionary business. You've looked at the national government, that's hierarchical command and control. You looked at the military, that's hierarchical command and control. There's one other cultural option. So you look at the Anglican church and what do you find? You find rigid ecclesiastical structures beginning with the archbishop. And there were two of them in England. And then you have bishops and priests and deacons, and it goes on and on. So my point is, is the only models you had when we get to the modern age of people literally developing businesses and incorporating their businesses, every model you have avail available to you is autocratic, hierarchical, command and control. Mm -hmm. So it should not surprise us that the businesses that are all formed in England and then eventually in the United States become that exact same way. Now, there were a few very rare individuals, uh, one like Robert Owen, who was a Welsh entrepreneur, and he started uh, a, a company in Scotland. He even offered child uh, so that people wouldn't have to worry about their children or leave them home. Uh, when uh, the moms were, were working in his mill, he was kind of ahead of his time with offering a number of very compassionate things for his employees. But people like Robert Owen were few and far between. And there is a lot of abuse. These people who were in the rural areas that are coming into the cities where these jobs are available, most of them are illiterate. Most of them are used to farm life. They're not used to a whistle going off at 8 a.m. and you start to work mm -hmm. and you work until the whistle goes off again at 12 and then the whistle goes on again right at 1230 and you work until they didn't have those kind of disciplines. They were, you know, they were from the farm. They were from agricultural environments. So the owners of these businesses were harsh they were abusive. They treated the people like children. They would terminate them at the drop of a hat. After all, there are far more people coming in from the farms, far more people than can possibly be hired. So if someone isn't producing today, you just dispose of them and have someone else take their place. So there was a lot of abuse. There were a lot of things going on in the early part of uh, the revolution, industrial revolution, that are not positive and not good for people. And again, most of these business owners are autocratic, command and control. They treat all of their employees like little children. Mm -hmm. And in our country, we had the same thing going on with uh, Carnegie and uh, Henry Ford and Rockefeller and our businesses were the same way. So to counterbalance that, then the next thing happens is we begin to form labor unions because they are there to counterbalance the abuse of the business owners. And in time, unfortunately, some of them also gain power and some of them also become corrupt and become very autocratic and become abusive to their uh, own members and then uh, abusive to the business owners and began to demand more things than the owners can possibly provide or do. That creates even greater tensions and problems in the workplace. But changes began to occur in about the mid-20th century. 
And some of it was the social unrest of the 1960s. It made a lot of people uh, like the Robert Greenleaf sit back and say, what have we done wrong? Mm -hmm. We've done all. We have this management. We have all these businesses. We have this whole generation of young people that are unhappy. They don't like the status quo. We have a whole generation of young people that are off in a war in Southeast Asia that they don't even understand. And many of them are dying for something they don't even grasp why it's important or why we're there. So in the 1960s, because of that unrest, consultants like Robert Greenleaf and others begin to look at our culture, begin to look at our workplaces, our management styles, our leadership styles, and begin to question what's going on. And of course, with Greenleaf's religious background, he keeps thinking of that comment that Jesus made about his disciples being servants first mm. and not being so concerned and obsessed with control and authority over other people. And so also some of the changes, again, are due to democracy in democracy you think of the united states you know we have a mini revolution every four years we change the person who sits in the white house we don't have to have people march up with uh, machetes and machine guns and have a palace coup every four years to change who our leader is we do that in uh, a quasi-civilized process i say that tongue-in-cheek because i know that politics are nasty and uh, they're ugly, uh, but they are an alternative to constant civil war. So democracy also encourages people to have a say. I mean, when you have the ability to vote for your leaders, you begin to have a say in who rules over you. Mm -hmm. And that obviously also filters into our businesses. It filters into our organizations. Then also, when you start getting into the 1970s and 80s, people are better educated. You now have so many individuals who have gone to college and who have graduated from high school. They're no longer these rural people who had migrated uh, from the farm uh, to the big cities in England 100 years earlier. They're better educated. They now can choose where they want to work. Rather than begging for a job, they now have their choice of the kind of career and who they want to work for. So the cultural changes produce a new kind of worker with a new attitude and a new work ethic. And that gets to the point where younger generations are basically saying we won't put up with autocratic leadership. We'll just simply leave. We don't need a job that bad. We're not going to put up with you treating us that way. We simply will move on. Mm -hmm. These younger generations that are in our workplace now, Gen X and younger, they are they have security. We have social safety nets. They're better educated and they don't fear changing jobs. I'll never forget. Of course, my mother lived through the Great Depression. And when I went from my first job to my second job, she was uh, visibly upset because in, in her generation, a job was precious. To be able to earn an income was precious. You didn't change jobs. You were appreciative for the job that you had, no matter how much it paid. 
whether it was fulfilling or not, it was a job. And when I moved from my first job to my second job, she was, remember telling her she was just visibly upset Mm -hmm. because uh, I was in a generation that didn't fear doing that. I was in the younger edge of uh, the baby boomers. So we come to the point where we are today where followers now judge their leaders more harshly. They expect more out of the leaders of a company. If you don't provide their needs, it's adios amigo, I'm out of here, and they'll find a job somewhere else. And so now the social contract has been broken. Again, something else had happened when I first entered the workplace. It was so common to find people who worked for the same employer for 35, 40 years. Mm -hmm. That social contract has been thoroughly broken. My children, who obviously are a younger generation than I am, they had a lot more jobs in their lifetime than I did because they had no problem simply moving from one job to another. It was easy for them. They were educated. They were talented. So they're able to do that. But that old-fashioned lifetime social contract, uh, I'll stay here forever if you just give me a paycheck, that has been broken. It's been something that's just not only been a loyalty to a company, but even a loyalty to ideals. I can, I can find the same type of ideals somewhere else. However, right now, where we are in the first part of 2023, with layoffs at Meta and other places, huge layoffs at Amazon, that that may slightly be adjusted. But nonetheless, people are much more free to go from one place to another. And in some countries, changing jobs is not correct in your thinking. If you start out working in the printing business, that's what you're supposed to do all your life because that's your calling, so to speak. You you don't Mm -hmm. jump from one place to another. You don't feel that freedom to do so. And when you look at the Western world, leaders now have impact only when they have credibility. You're Mm -hmm. just not going to find younger people who are there and working for you because you have a title you have to walk the walk Mm -hmm. you have to talk the talk or else they're going to be on their way so the world has changed and it continues to change at a rapid pace and the bottom line is is that the continuation of autocratic management has created a toxic workplace culture the younger generations won't put up with that anymore They'll simply leave and go somewhere else where they enjoy working. They're at least willing to give it a shot, to give it a try, because they don't want to work there anymore. Right. So the, the command and control no longer works. People expect more out of the workplace because of uh, democratic influences in our culture. People are better educated. They have other opportunities. People are less tolerant of verbal abuse. They're not going to put up with it. In some cases, you can have a potential litigation if you abuse someone over certain issues or qualities they have. So people have become alienated and people have become demotivated. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw this particularly after the end of the pandemic, uh, you know, the quiet quitting and people who just refuse to go back into their office, who want to continue working out of home, out of their homes, rather than go back to a central location and work out of an office. Many people are demotivated mm-hmm. and um, demotivated workers often punish a command and control work environment. Usually they'll slow down purposely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or they'll do nothing 
for hours. They'll look busy. People have developed the incredible skill of looking busy and doing absolutely nothing. So they might look busy, but they're demotivated and they're going to punish that command and control work environment until uh, they leave. And that'll so, that'll bite them in the end. That'll, that'll bite the oh, company. Yeah, that'll absolutely. bite everybody sure. in the end. Yeah. Oh, you look. You've, this is a competitive world. You need to attract the best rather than just the related to someone and the rest. Mm-hmm. So to achieve and keep the brightest and the best, you have to treat them well. You've got to give them an environment that uh, they can thrive in. You've got to give them benefits that are at least equal to what the existing cultural benefits are, preferably better. You have to compensate them well, because if you don't do that, people will withdraw their support or they'll openly rebel verbally or through emails. You'll have a problem with chronic absenteeism. People will become passive and they stop participating. Uh, They become indifferent. They have no interest in doing work anymore. Their output and productivity is reduced. Then they resist change. If you come up with a new computer system or anything, they resist it. Some of the more nasty individuals actually sabotage it to try to make management look bad or Mm -hmm. incompetent. Mm -hmm. So these are all the things that you have in a toxic work environment that's been created by autocratic leadership. Okay, this is also very, very helpful, Greg, because I've uh, witnessed some of this, I've lived through some of this. These are things that you notice in the workforce and what you hear from people who say, I quit, they move on, not just money. It's also the personalities, it's the people you work with, it's the acceptance, it's the appreciation for your work and your contribution that people look to. So, Next time, what I'd like to do, Vic, when we get a chance to get together, is a little more the nitty-gritty of what does servant leadership look like. So we'll get down to brass tacks and have a few more examples of what the culture of an organization actually looks like when it's led by a servant leader. And again, I want to emphasize the importance of leadership. As Peter Drucker said, only three things happen naturally in organizations, friction, confusion, and underperformance. And that's true of every organization. He said everything else requires leadership. So that's why we need leadership. Uh, Leaders are an essential part of getting things done and getting things done effectively and efficiently. So the thing that came to mind was a statement by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, this man's a general when he says this, and I'm going to quote him. You don't lead people by hitting them over the head. Mm -hmm. That's assault not leadership. Mm -hmm. So again, that's by a general, some military man of all people. So Dwight Eisenhower understood that you just can't boss people around. You just can't um, manipulate and abuse people, that you have to be a leader that cares about your people. You have to be a leader who puts people first. And that's what I'd like to talk about next time. Again, we'll go into a little more detail Vic, about uh, what does servant leadership actually look like in an organization? How does that sound? That sounds great. I'm, I'm looking forward to not just one, but more of this subject because people hear about it and there's something mystifying about it because in our culture, we're, we're mm-hmm. servant implies more than just uh, uh, secular meanings. It implies something that's 
your point number 12, spiritual element you know, to, to what we do. Sure. And certainly when you really get down to it, when we talk about servant leadership, that has been adopted and that has come over from spiritual principle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then earlier when we talked about the history, we uh, viewed the various uh, religious aspects of the idea of servant leadership even be before uh, the name was coined. So let's talk about that next time, and I look forward to that next podcast with you, Vic. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at vcubic at gmail.com, v-k-u-b-i-k at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.